In the lobby of Research Building MC19 at the Florida Atlantic University campus in Jupiter, Florida, sits a fish tank by the entrance. Approaching it, you might see a flutter of movement and iridescent splash in the corner of your eye. A decorative tank in a building lobby is nothing out of the ordinary. However, a closer look reveals that this tank and the fish inside are not typical. A glass plate divides the tank in two. On one side, the fish look regular, silvery and iridescent, with black eyes about three inches long. The fish on the other side, however, are completely different. They are pinkish pale color and have no eyes. What is surprising is that the plaque identifies them both as Astyanax mexicanus. The eyed fish is from surface rivers in the mountains of Mexico, the eyeless fish from underground caves below. The tank poses the question of how could the same fish look so different? Well, that is what scientists have been investigating for close to 80 years since the fish's discovery in the 1930s, including a group of scientists upstairs. I am Andrea Carter, and this is the Cavefish Chronicles, the story of one fish's journey from cave to lab and the scientists that helped pave its way. This is episode one, The Discovery. It, it almost looks like an Adobe Photoshop live animal where it almost looks like you just, did, you know, erased this eye. But the cavefish, they just, it's eerie almost because you'll have a headlamp. And so you have a focal point of where that headlamp is shining. And so you can see just these little white, like sardine looking things kind of floating in the water next to you. And they're not afraid at all. They looked cool, right? I mean, they were basically um, blind fish that, that uh, look like pale. They're pale. They don't have this dark pigment. They don't need the pigment anymore. Um, and uh, they don't have eyes because they don't need eyes anymore. Um, it's totally blind in the cave. And uh, so they looked interesting. And then the cool thing, I mean, the biggest advantage of it is that you have the, the sister species um, the surface fish, the river fish, uh, still available. And they both are in the lab. You can keep both of them in the lab. You can breed them. So it's a very powerful genetic system. Walking into the fish room upstairs feels cave-like. The room is not large, about 300 square feet, and there is low light. Tanks stacked up several rows high line the walls. Water filters through them and creates a soothing background noise. Here and there, a flickering movement and splashes of iridescence catch your eye in all directions as the fish swim about in their tanks. Researchers are in and out of the room either to take care of the fish or to grab some for experiments. Ali Paz, a graduate student with long dark hair and an open smile, gives me a tour. And then behind you, all these bowls are baby fish. So these are just a few days old. Wow, they look like little tadpoles, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how many do you grow uh, at a time? Or how many are in here, I guess? Um, I mean, hundreds, right? So it really depends. We've got stocks that are for breeding, just more normal fish. We've got stocks that have been genetically modified in ways that are of interest to us basically hybrids between cavefish and surface fish. Ali is a graduate student of Alex Keane. He, along with Joanna Coalco and Eric Dubois, form a tri-lab group studying the cavefish here at the FAU Jupiter, Florida campus. Joanna studies cavefish genetics and Eric and Alex cavefish behavior and neuroscience. 
These professors lead a lab filled with a mix of people. There are undergraduate students, graduate students who are working toward a science doctorate, and postdoctorate fellows who have received their PhD and are receiving further training. Last year, the TriLab group received a $1.1 million grant to develop genetic and neuroimaging tools to further establish the cavefish as a scientific model, following in the footsteps of mice, zebrafish, and drosophila. The cavefish did not start out as a scientific subject in the United States. Before that, it was an aquarium curiosity, an eyeless pet bought and sold in the aquarium trade, where it is known as the Mexican tetra. And kind of the cool story about the fish, they weren't discovered by Americans. This is Josh Gross, a cavefish researcher at the University of Cincinnati. It was discovered by a Mexican surveyor. So this is back in like, you know, the mid-1930s. He walked into this chica cave. He found the fish and he thought, oh, these are, these are interesting. And he contacted someone in the pet trade industry named Basil Jordan, who worked out of Texas. So Jordan was like, well, can you send me, send me some fish? The surveyor was named Salvatore Coronado, and he sent Jordan 75 fish. Jordan then sent half of those to the University of Michigan. At the time, they described this cavefish as a new genus and species separate from the surface river fish called Asianex fasciatus mexicanus. The story goes that Jordan, the collector, sent half of the specimens up to University of Michigan and the other half sort of became part of the pet trade. As for Michigan, the reason he sent them there is because the world expert was a guy named Carl Hubbs. He described the fish, published the very first paper in 1936. The fish sort of made this big splash. A bunch of researchers got into it. In later years, scientists proved that the surface fish and the cavefish were more related than Hubs had thought. Studies showed that enzymes, proteins that catalyze biochemical reactions in the body, were the same between the two fish, revealing that they were closely related. So John Avis publishes this paper, does all the enzymatic work in 1969. He sends a letter to Carl Hubs, because they didn't have email back then, and says, Hey, I wanted to let you know I have this paper coming out. It's coming out in Evolution, which is a good journal, and we think that the cave and the surface fish may actually be members of the same species. And so Carl Hubbs famously wrote him back two weeks later and said, anyone who thinks that cavefish are the same genus, let alone the same species as the surface fish, are as blind as the fish themselves. Simply put, the fish look different because one group has adapted to life under the sun and the other to the dark. But in some cases, the river fish have made it down to the caves and bred with the cavefish, creating hybrids with a range of characteristics. Back in the fish lab with Ali Paz, you see this. The fish do not all look the same. There is a shading of color in different stages of eye development. It's like a living roadmap of development and evolution. So one of the cool things about them is it's not like Okay, you had surface fish and then you got cave fish. It's these surface fish have gotten trapped in different caves at different times, and even though the cave populations don't interact with each other, they've become very similar. Here, specific genetic changes have been made to many of these fish when they are single celled embryos so that they grow up with specific traits or characteristics called phenotypes. You can ask questions like, does this always happen the same way? So for example, they've all lost their eyes. None of these cave populations have functioning eyes, but at the molecular level and at the genetic level, did they all do it in the same way? 
If so, then that's interesting, right? It gives you an idea of the importance of this or that pathway. Can you describe what the hybrids are? Yeah, definitely. So I'm trying to see if I can find some to show you. But so you can breed surface and cave fish and you'll end up with fish that, you know, some are totally unpigmented, some are sort of pigmented, some have large eyes, some have no eyes, some have small eyes, and you just get this mishmash of like cave and surface characteristics and so it's cool because then you can sort of tease apart what's going on at the genetic level that corresponds to these traits we see so here you go these are surface cave hybrids so like this dude right here has tiny eyes and uh -huh. sort of reduced pigmentation whereas that's more of like a surface fish that you'd expect so the surface fish are kind of more silvery uh, with that rainbow, I don't know, iridescent yep. hue. You got that little bit of blue on them and that characteristic like back uh, black stripe on their tail. Right. And then the cave fish, yeah, are more of a white, maybe a little bit of peach on them. After the cave fish's discovery, it got noticed by scientists both in Mexico and the United States at the New York Zoological Society. A look back to 1940 describes what scientists saw when they first entered the Mexican cavefish caves. Myron Gordon, a geneticist, went first to the caves to collect some samples, followed by ichthyologist Charles Breeder, who led the 1940 Aquarium Cave Expedition with the help of Salvatore Coronado. Writer William Bridges traveled with the group and wrote about the journey for the Zoological Society in its May-June 1940 edition. They were looking for the Chica Cave, the one Myron Gordon had visited, which is in the Sierra de la Abra mountain region in northern Mexico. Breeder and crew based themselves in the small town of Valles that had a population of about 5,000 people at the time. They set out one morning eager but apprehensive on whether they could find the cave, armed only with a hand-drawn map and photos from Dr. Gordon. As they got closer, the road narrowed to a rocky footpath used by locals to gather water from the cave. Most of the group took the last leg of the trip by foot. When they arrived at the cave opening, it matched the photo they had. In the next few minutes, we will know whether we were chasing blind fish or geese, wrote William Bridges. Their flashlights shone through the pitch black, illuminating stalagmites and the cave walls, which looked like frosting that had been squeezed from an enormous cake. Moving deeper into the cave, the men crouched and crawled, reaching a dark pool 1,000 feet underground. Dipping their nets into the water, they pulled up an eyeless white fish, but also others with eyes, and some in between with partially formed eyes. I guess we can go home now, said E.B. Gresser, the ophthalmologist, as he dropped fish into a collection jar. As the expedition concluded, the writer William Bridges said, they are going to be famous fish before the technicians and the ophthalmologists are through with them. Breeder and Gresser were some of the first to study the fish, looking at histology and eye development. When Turkish scientist Perihan Shadalu came to work with Breeder, it marked the beginning of genetic studies with the fish. She was the first to cross the cavefish and surface fish, which was a breeding breakthrough. This was the key finding that makes astyonics a good model to study evolution. You have an evolved species and its genetic ancestor in the same lab. By breeding them together, scientists could study how genes for certain characteristics like eye loss may be inherited. In her research report, Chatelou wrote, these cavefish provide the only known instance where a recently evolved species can be crossed with its ancestral type and studied genetically. Perahan was sent there by her advisor, Kurt Koswig, 
who has his own interesting story. Born in Germany, Dr. Koswig was a young and promising scientist studying zoology and genetics as the Nazis took control. Evidence shows that he was recruited by the Nazi party for a period of time, which was common for academics at state universities. He was expected to teach racial genetics, which supported Aryan superiority, but Koswig would not comply. He had Jewish colleagues whom he respected and stood up for. At one point, he received a letter from the Minister of Education telling him to teach or he would be sent to a concentration camp, according to his student Horst Wilkins. Koswig narrowly escaped arrest by the SS fleeing to Turkey in 1937, leaving his family behind. His family later joined him as he settled into a position at the University of Istanbul at the invitation of a former colleague. Dr. Koswood had heard about astyonics before the war and suspected that the cavefish and the riverfish above may be closely related and could be crossed, but he did not have access to the fish during the war, so afterwards, in the 1950s, he sent his graduate student, Perahan Shadaloo, to New York to work with Breeder and the fish. He started already in Turkey after the war to contact Breeder in New York. He sent a Turkish student, Perian Shadulu, to New York Aquarium, and she was the first to cross Astyanak's cave and surface fish. This is Horst Wilkins, professor emeritus at the University of Hamburg in Germany, who was also a student of Koswig's years after Perahan Shadulu. He has gone on to be a leader in the field studying cave animal evolution. I asked Horst about Perahan. He, of course, knew of her, but could not say much about what happened to her after she worked with Dr. Koswig. He asked other colleagues for me, but wrote back that they did not know what had happened to her either. He said that an American woman had come to Germany asking about Perihan some years ago, but he could not remember her name. Nobody knows anything about her because she went to New York once she was here to give a presentation, and then there was no contact. Well, I started the same crossings as Perian Shadolu did. He was already at the end of his official time. So I'm the last student he had here in Hamburg. And he gave me this theme about Astyanax, I think, because he was not quite satisfied with the results of Shadowloo. She stopped halfway, did not really finish all this. I don't know why. And then she vanished somewhere in the United States. Perahan Shadowloo did disappear from science, but not right away. She was part of an era when scientists and explorers went to Mexico and found new caves and cavefish, bringing them back to the lab during the 60s and 70s. Evidently, there's a story that she was, she was snuck in to Mexico in the trunk of a car um, to drive across the border in order to do some of her field research back in the 1960s. This age of exploration expanded the Astyanak cavefish's scientific presence in the United States and Europe. More on this next time on the Cavefish Chronicles. 
This podcast was made possible by a grant from the National Science Foundation and was produced by myself, Andrea Carter, edited by Sam Houghton, with original music by May and Willa Mincer.